You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. It's the 5th of March, 2016. I'm Benjamin Riley. I'm Simon Copland. Welcome to Queers. Each episode, we talk our way through questions on a theme, and this week we're talking about Mardi Gras and police violence. By the time this podcast is released, Sydney will have just celebrated its Mardi Gras parade, and every year, hundreds of thousands of locals and tourists turn out for the event. There's been a lot in the news leading up to the parade this year, much of it centering on an apology delivered by Parliament in the state of New South Wales to a group known as the 78ers, the original group of protesters who, on an evening in 1978, gathered on Sydney's Oxford Street following a morning protest march to commemorate the Stonewall riots in New York almost a decade earlier. The gathering grew to about 2,000 participants and was broken up by police who arrested 53 people. The charges were eventually dropped, but those arrested had their names, addresses and occupations published in the Sydney Morning Herald, a, uh, a local newspaper. The apology from Parliament was met with a mixed reaction from the gay community. This is just in the last couple of weeks. While there was a lot of initial excitement, frustration began to build around the tokenism of the apology, questions about why it hadn't come from the police, and about the involvement of the press in the uh, the original protest and arrests led to... Um, eventually led to somewhat half-hearted apologies from both the New South Wales Police and the Sydney Morning Herald. But ongoing dissatisfaction on this issue has raised some interesting questions about how we as communities engage with our own histories of violence and trauma. Simon, to start us off, do you think those involved in the parliamentary apology genuinely expected it to draw a line under the history of police violence in our communities? And do you think that was its aim? It's a really interesting question and one I hadn't really thought of until uh, you asked it. Um, But I think... Yes, is probably the most likely answer to that. I think that, uh, and this, and Australia has a little bit of a history with this, with parliamentary apologies for previous uh, violence against minority communities, and it's sort of an expectation that that is this major line in the sand that 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 transverses from a, a violent history to a to a non to a non-violent future. I think that that's probably what happened in the in the parliamentary process, and it was interesting to see that the two people who gave the apology were Alex Greenwich and the Liberal member for Cronulla, whose name I've just forgotten, who is the the other the other gay member of Parliament. The Liberal member for Coogee, I think it is Bruce Notley Smith. My bad, my knowledge of New South Wales politics isn't too crash hot. So there was a sort of uh, um, I guess a that that signalled I guess an acceptance of the gay community into into the parliamentary processes, into the state processes, which I think was uh, was very symbolic. Um, I think what was interesting was um, the apology from the New South Wales Police and from the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, the Sydney Morning Herald in, in particular was very half-hearted and almost like trying to provide an excuse for what they did um, still some 40 years later. Uh, and I think that they were both, both those organisations were likely caught off guard uh, and... And, and showed themselves not willing to really denounce their history, the, 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 this particular history. Uh, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's fun, it's it's interesting. Funny is the wrong word, but it's interesting in particular that both of those uh, apologies from the um, the police and the Sydney Morning Herald, like like it's crazy that they didn't uh, realise that there would be kind of anger about this from at least some sections of the community. I mean, even I was surprised at how uh, widespread that anger was within gay communities. But it was like, it seems like everyone in these establishments did kind of go, ah, ah, I guess this isn't the end of it. I guess this apology in Parliament isn't what's going to put an end to this. And we were actually involved and I guess we need to say something about that. And it only happened 
um, in the I think the the Sydney Morning Herald apology was a couple of days after the parliamentary. Yeah, that's one, right. And it was like a week later for the cops. Yeah. Um, and both only came after people like kind of public figures within the community really gave them a lot of shit for not for not saying anything. Um, I remember seeing one of the things that kind of sparked, I think, uh, for me at least, th- thinking a lot about this stuff was seeing a, a, a tweet from um, a gay journalist up in up in Sydney commenting on the the uh, uh, the fact that the Sydney Morning Herald were kind of publishing stories very effusively celebrating this apology in New South Wales Parliament while not in any way acknowledging the fact that they were very culpable in, in the violence done to these people as well. Yeah, and I mean, for the for a bit of background with the apology there, what happened was, um, so the Sydney Morning Herald published the names and addresses of these uh, 53 people who were arrested. Uh, and um, they, a lot of people, you know, have stories of losing jobs, losing friends and family, really being isolated from the communities because of this. And in the apology, what happened was that they said, Basically, you know, we're sorry we did this, but then they justified it by saying this was the practice of the time. This is this is what newspapers did when people were arrested. Now, there's a lot of people who are challenging that, but the mere justification of it, the attempt to justify it, um, to many, and I think rightfully so, said, you know, you, you're not serious about this. You're still providing excuses when what you should have done is just apologised. And it's interesting to me because I think that there is a difference between the City Morning Herald and the police in this instance, and. The Sydney Morning Herald, I just don't understand why they went down that approach, why they took that approach, why they tried to justify themselves. There is no gain for them. There is no reason why they needed to do that. Uh, But it says something about them that that is the position that they continue to take, that they continue to justify themselves. The police, however, I think that... Uh, there is issues that we need to talk about in terms of uh, continued levels of violence towards uh, from the police towards um, queer queer communities. Uh, most sort of publicly seen a few years ago in 2013, where a number of videos came out of um, police violence against um, against queer people at Mardi Gras in the in the post um, post Mardi Gras and the parties on the streets of you know in Oxford Street, uh, and there's been stories this year about sort of the police having a bit of a uh, what what do we call it? It was a sort of morality team that was going that sort of um, championed to go around um, tonight to, to go around at Mardi Gras, sort of checking that people are sort of dressed properly and you know not not exposing themselves and doing all of these things. In, um, you know that 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 sort of stuff is is is, is ongoing in the police, uh, and that's something that that might that might explain some of the reasons why they were so slow to apologise, why they were so unwilling, and why their apology was was kind of half-hearted as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's interesting just to to comment briefly again on the the Sydney Morning Herald uh, apology as well. I feel like what a lot of what is kind of interesting about this stuff, and and particularly about maybe why they were so half-hearted in, in what they were saying and, and, and perhaps shocked at the idea that they could have been so culpable uh, is this, you know, that they, they're, they're considered a kind of left-wing publication and, mm. you know, the idea that uh, uh, sort of people on the left could have been responsible for any kind of violence against a minority community uh, and, and could be held accountable to that is, is, is this idea that's like completely um, shocking you know, to kind of blame it purely on the 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 what was done at the time. I think I think reflects that sort of 
uh, lack of self-criticism, I guess, that uh, I would say you see you see quite a lot on the left. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, is, is potentially a reason why Sydney Morning Herald went went the way they went they were, uh, went the way they went. Um, but I guess it says also something about um, you know the broader left or what what we would call the left um, in terms of. Um, in terms of our, their approach to queer communities in the past, and what we would consider left-wing publications or left-wing organisations who weren't friend, who weren't friends of queer communities in this in this period, um, it was interesting. I saw another article about um, the uh, builders, uh, the BLF, the Builders Labor Foundation, who actually were helping helping the marches at this time and doing uh, work with queer communities before the 78ers, before the 78 Mardi Gras. And it shows, I guess, there was a lot of people who were saying, well, look, you know, these union movements who are actually supporting us uh, and who get very little um, sort of uh, coverage in these days as being supporters of the queer community. When we spend a lot of time talking about the police as being supporters of the queer community or Sydney Morning Herald, um, it's a very different picture. Mm. Um, no, to, to think about the, this, the instance you were talking about earlier uh, of violence a few years ago at Mardi Gras, and I think there was one particular um, incident that, got a lot of coverage because it was filmed and the, the video mm-hmm. was circulated of one particular young guy um, being, being uh, I don't know, what, what would, we, would we say beaten? Is that too strong a, a, a term? Certainly handled very roughly by... Yeah. By police. Oh, I mean, I, I would I would say beaten, <laughs> but you know, roughly roughly handled. This was the. Are you talking about the kid who sort of was kicked to the ground and sort of held down by a police officer? I can't remember. Was Jamie something? I've I've forgotten what his name was. But I suppose this is. You know, there was a lot of outrage about that at the time, and that's come up a little bit now. But um, I do think we have this um, weird thing in gay communities where we we don't uh, we seem to just forget kind of really quickly. Um, I mean that I guess is is quite a uh, you know a relative not that any kind of inc- inc- instance of violence by by police against uh, a person is is a minor thing but you know compared to some of the kind of bigger incidents that we're talking about further back in the past um, you know we the I mean the the seventy eighters were not all that long ago it was it was you know less than less than uh, forty years ago and we we sort of I think as communities don't really connect very strongly and, and own that history of trauma in the same way. I was thinking as well about the um, the Tasty raid in Melbourne in, I think, 1994. Yep. Um, so it was an incident where uh, police raided a gay nightclub in Melbourne, um, and it was it was horrific. Basically, they, they locked down the venue for hours whilst they strip-searched um, all, most of the patrons in the venue publicly in, in, in front of everyone else. Um and the police in, in Victoria um, apologised for that uh, a couple of years ago as well. But I mean that, like, this is the kind. This stuff is huge. I mean, these are like huge instances of violence against our community. Mm-hmm. That that the Tasty Raid was was twenty years ago. I mean, you know, that was in my in my lifetime. I mean, in my memory, even. Um, I mean, why do you think we do forget this stuff, or that we are so desperate to kind of move on from it? It's it's a really good question, and I, and I think that the both the Tasty Raid and the violence in Mardi Gras in 2013, which is only three years ago, uh, are both really good examples of that uh, of of a sort of forgetfulness. I I remember the post uh, 2013 instance. Um, I was not at the Mardi Gras. I was in Brisbane. There was there was outrage. There were protests that ran on. Uh, it was it was quite a severe. It was quite a um, significant. Um, 
event and it was one that that caused a lot of outrage within queer communities but it also dissipated very quickly it sort of was like well so somehow people began to believe that we dealt with it because of that like that the that the that the issue is unlikely to come up again uh, and, I, and I wonder whether it's to do with some sort of desire to believe like we've moved beyond that point uh, that we are no longer in a situation where you know queer communities are facing that sort of violence and so that violence is seen as an individual incidence you know in in, in the 2013 example a lot of what 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 was blamed was not the police itself, not as an institution, but there was a lot of people saying, well, what happened was that during Mardi Gras, a lot of police officers from Western Sydney come into the East and they don't understand the same, have, you know, understand the same issues as police officers from the city centre who deal with queer people more often. Mm. And that well, was a even, real... Even worse stuff. I mean, there were, there were people who were blaming the guy, who were blaming the, the, mm. the victim, saying like, you know, the police are actually fine. This guy was just being a douchebag and, you know, probably, I mean, maybe wouldn't go so far as to say he deserved it, but that was the implication. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, th I saw that as well. And I think that there's a, I guess, a a desire to believe almost that we have come so far um, so that it's, it's we don't, you know, that, that, that violence doesn't exist anymore, or, you know, that structural violence doesn't exist anymore. I don't know why that is, but I think uh, maybe it goes down to the fact that for a lot of us, that is the case. You know, we can be comfortable and, you know, a lot of us don't face police violence. I've never, you know, for for, for being a queer person, I've not, not come across that, you know, I've not been one who's faced queer violence. So it's it's easy to cover over those sorts of things. Um, but I think that that's dangerous. It's It, it leads to potential complacency uh, when, when, when it's still a relevant issue. Mm. I mean, I wonder, because after a certain point, you, you have to kind of call it delusional. I mean, like obviously people do still experience violence both both kind of in very direct senses like the incident a few years ago and also kind of more structurally and and institutionally um mm. and so and so it's i don't know maybe it's like the desire to kind of will a reality that's not there into existence um but i also wonder whether it goes to something that i think is at the heart of a lot of um contemporary queer politics which is the kind of um uh, how to how to put it like a kind of good queer bad queer thing, you know, mm. or or um, you know good gay bad gay, and it comes up I think around lots of things comes around around um, HIV I think is another area where this this is a really common thing where people who are who maybe benefit more from the status quo queer people who benefit more from the status quo and for kind of um, present establishments people who have more money who have better jobs who are white. For example, um, are kind of keen to distance themselves from people who don't have those things, almost as a way of it's almost like a self-protection method, you know, to kind of go, you know, if if I say that violence is not something that could, you know, that that is part of my politics and part of my life, then there's no chance that I can kind of experience that or, or suffer that or, or be considered marginalized yeah it's interesting uh, that's a very interesting point and I, I actually while we were just chatting I was going back to find that article about these sort of morality people that I was that I um, referenced to earlier because I was a bit worried that I'd made it up in my head um, and didn't want that but uh, I've got the article and what what, it's, what they're called is actually decency inspectors and um, they've come, come under uh, under fire 
a couple of times. There's a good article we could we could potentially share in the show notes here. Um, but one uh, so in two, it says in 2013 they came under fire for demanding that members of the Leather Pride float um, cover their backsides before being allowed to march in the parade. Um, so things like that, and that's a really interesting example of a thing that you know going back to what you're saying is there's a good queer, bad queer. There's the sort of promiscuous queer who is out, um, the the odd queer who is out doing these sort of weird things, showing their showing their backsides at Mardi Gras, even though that's like a pretty common thing to to happen. Yeah. Um, but that they're, they're part of that that, that that sort of queer that is promiscuous, uh, flaunting it out in the in the public, who is no longer you know still very sexual, who is out there. Uh, doing these doing these things and who are the ones who are at the receiving end of police violence and but we sort of almost accept that because they're the bad queers potentially um they don't they're not fitting into the into the norms that we want anymore the norms of get on your marriage equality float you know be proud and then go home and go to bed Mm. i mean but it's it's interesting because it's not as if i don't know quote-unquote mainstream or establishment kind of gay communities don't engage in a politics of outrage. And in fact, I think that that really sort of dominates a lot of contemporary gay politics. But maybe it would be interesting to talk about the distinctions, if we can find them, between what is acceptable to be angry about and what is not acceptable to be angry about. I mean, the the kind of obvious, um, the that I always think of like a um, uh, a holy trinity of of, of, uh, queer outrage issues, which drives me a bit nuts, nuts which is um, it's marriage equality is kind of the obvious one. Yeah. But then it's like uh, representations of queer people in um, media. So, you know, the idea mm-hmm. that there aren't, there's, there aren't enough gays on television and it's unacceptable that there aren't enough gays on television. And yep. then like representation of queer people in um, uh, inst- institutions like politics and, and business. And that's... Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Superlight Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Superlight Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A L L B I R D S.com code SUPER24. Of thing like why aren't there enough gays on boards and why aren't there enough gays in in parliament and they're all all these kind of um fairly symbolic issues i guess i mean why do you think it's okay to get angry about those things and in fact it's in some ways not okay not to get angry about those things mm-hmm. but if you are someone who is outraged about structural violence about uh you know material inequality you're told to kind of shut up yeah yeah i mean i think this goes goes continues on with our discussion about um about the different types of queers and i think that all of those things uh those that holy trinity of outrage is what you called it i quite like that term uh it's it's 
it's they're all aspirational issues. They're all about things. They're things about which um, sort of your middle class white queer wants to wants to aspire to. They're they're the the level of you know it's all they're almost the last level i guess of um discrimination against people who are middle class and queer or probably more middle class and gay um and lesbian mm. uh and they're the, these are the things that they want to get into you know get into marriage get into politics get into the media and at, that's that's the last level for them so that's the thing that is okay to be outraged because that is the thing that, that is their final barrier uh and you know for someone like me who is middle class and white and gay um that would be the same in many ways that i would that would be, that would be my final barrier to really to to equality uh and but that means that we ignore all of these structural violence that that impacts people who are generally working class and queer or uh yeah working class and queer or gen often trans people who even if they are middle class still face a whole range of barriers um you know th those sorts of things get get ignored um and it's when you've got a group of people who have the wealth now, and I think there's a lot of wealth in queer communities um, and have a lot of voice, they are the ones who can, can express the outrage at the particular issues they're outraged at. Uh, and it's a lot harder for people who are outraged at other issues to get that space. Mm. And I think also the, you know, the, the nature of the media uh, and, and engaging with and consuming media is that it's not just about the kind of proportion. It's not just the fact that there are powerful people who can sort of be outraged in public about the things that they care about and they've got a louder voice. I think that that also kind of shapes the way that we think about what we can be outraged about for all of us. And, you know, like I, mm. I want to stray and you and I have talked about this at length before, but I wouldn't want to stray too far into a kind of false consciousness argument, <laughs> but um, you have to wonder how much people are cut off from engaging with particular issues because they don't even know that that's something that it's possible to change or that it's possible to engage with politically. Yeah, I think that there's an interesting one there about the ability to possible to change type stuff. And I think that uh, we can we can link this back to the police as well. But, you know, one of the things about marriage equality, for example, is because there is so much energy behind it and so much money behind it, I think a lot of people see that as the key thing that we can change. And, and that's something that I come up against a lot in terms of when I talk about other issues is it's sort of like we have to get marriage equality done first because otherwise we'll, you know, we need to do that first because that's the next step on the, on the path. Mm. Um, and, and when going back to some of the police violence stuff, I think that what has happened, and, I, and again, I, I keep referring to the 2013 example because I really kept a close eye on it, um, was that people sought a way to change it, um, but a way to change it that I don't think was ever going to change it. So, you know, there was a, there was a number of police forums. There was talk about training for police. Um, there was talk about, you know, this, this issue of Western people from Western Sydney coming in and, and doing those things, so that not happening again in the future. And what it, what it did is created some Band-Aid solutions. Um, there was a, you know, Alex Greenwich, I remember Alex Greenwich holding a forum with the police in, in, in Sydney at the time. Uh, there was a few, I think, Band-Aid solutions that made us feel like we'd made the change when in my view we we hadn't when when a lot of those cultural structural issues had not been changed and it's difficult because you like changing those those cultural and structural issues is really really hard really hard um and so it's easy to go well you know to think that we'd made the change when we hadn't uh to 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 be able to go look we've done that we've we've solved the problem great us great for us let's let's move on let's not worry about it anymore I mean, what do you think uh, within the realms of, I suppose, um, relatively immediate feasibility would 
be uh, an approach that could make a dent in this kind of stuff. Oh god, that's. A I mean, other than you know the the stuff that we talk about all the time, which is like massive cultural and structural social change. Yeah, I think that. Um... I suppose I'm asking: are, are band aid solutions the only realistic option at present? For probably, like in in reality, like I, I can't, I you know, beyond building a social movement that fights against this, you know, that that actually fights against structural violence, um, you know, and one that recognizes the police as an actor within that structural violence uh and and treats them as that rather than treating them as our friend um then you know that those you know that those band-aid solutions are the only sort of potential outcome at this point in time and i think that that's the difficulty um and and the reason why the police are still allowed to march in Mardi Gras, despite this history and despite the continued history. It's why these things continue to happen. Um, it's why they continue to be called our friends, um, because the 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 structural change is very very difficult to achieve, and it also creates a very sort of um, it, it recognises uh, this organisation as 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 one of the perpetrators of structural violence, and that's very hard for a lot of people to do. Mm. I mean, because it sounds like. Um the implication there is that it's not so much that band-aid solutions are a bad thing in and of themselves. It's that they have to be recognized as such. You know, the problem comes when we think those sorts of solutions are actual solutions, you know, that like, yeah. the, you know, there's nothing wrong with trying to kind of mitigate violence and mitigate those problems in, in the, in the short term, but they can't, stop us that can't stop us from wanting kind of bigger change and i think that that's often the side effect of of those sorts of political approaches yeah absolutely i think i totally agree with that mm. now this this might be a bit of a, a a left turn but i um i suppose particularly when you you were talking about um aspirational the kind of aspirational politics of of um those that holy trinity those issues i i mentioned before i've been thinking a bit the last um kind of couple of years uh about and came to it through um do you know against equality the, mm-hmm. the collective mm-hmm. it's a kind of u.s a north american um based collective that that are kind of do work on radical queer issues and and one of the big issues they look at is um hate crimes legislation and it's it's not something that's as big uh, a thing here though i think we're we're starting to see people within queer communities start to call for it yeah um, yep. and i i wonder whether and and you know, tell me if you think I'm, I'm going completely off the rails here, but I wonder whether part of the reason that we're so willing to think of the police as potentially a force for good is this desire from a lot of people within uh, gay communities to, like, I guess, aspire to use the police as an instrument of violence against people that we do find unacceptable and hate crimes legislation is kind of a, a a potential manifestation of that like we want these punitive structures to be in place so that we can one day use them yeah it's, it's about getting the state on our side and i think you know we can loop this all the way back to the the, the first question you asked about whether this was the state you know the, the new south wales parliament drawing a line in the stand of a line in the sand of being you know a violent past and a non-violent future um, I think a lot of what we can see out of um, queer politics and organising in the last 10, 15, 20 years has been about getting the state on our side, effectively. And the state 
in my view, uh, and particularly the use of the police in a, in a prison system is a, is a violent structure that, um, that, uh, that, that targets minorities in particular, um, but, and has targeted queer communities in particular. But what, what we're seeing is about, is an attempt to get the state on our side. And then, yeah, I think it's an interesting thought that I hadn't, that I hadn't thought of, of using something like hate crimes legislation to be able to use the punitive, punitive structures, um, against the people who, who we don't like, um, or who, who have committed violence against us. Um, and it's your use of violence to, to deal with violence, use of state violence to deal with local in, individual violence, and and and, I, and it is a, it is a very problematic approach in my mind. Mm. Is, is is that how you see it too? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it, it becomes almost a um, a dick measuring contest in some sense. <laughs> like you know, now we can like look who's the bully now. Like look what we can look what we can do now. I just had this. I've been thinking about this the the past few days, particularly because I saw this like. Um, I don't know, I'm always wary of just like bringing up a tweet as a point of conversation, but uh, somebody um, who I sort of vaguely know in the community um, tweeted this like picture that he took of somebody on a tram. It was like a, a, looked like a young woman, maybe in her teens of like her with her feet up on the seat. I think I saw this tweet. That's, it's, that's, that's so funny. So he tweeted this picture and basically like had this like rant in the tweet about how she, he hoped that she would get caught by ticket inspectors and fined because mm-hmm. he was appalled at the arrogance of of this the arrogance and disrespect of of this woman putting um her feet up on the seat and I just saw that and I was just like what is this like this is someone and I don't want to have a go at a particular person you know because I think this is probably emblematic of of broader attitudes in the community but the idea that people who would consider themselves um, politically engaged, politically active, progressive people who are fighting for change to to make things better for queer people would have this desire for such kind of punishment of a person for such an arbitrary means. And maybe it's a long, for such an arbitrary thing. And maybe it's a kind of long bow to draw to, to say that that is representative of this one tweet is representative of some like bigger problem in, in queer communities but it did really kind of tie very neatly in my mind at least into all this stuff that that we've just been talking about yeah but i mean it's you see it a lot and and i think we're seeing it a lot in terms of um going back to that sort of holy trinity you talk about i think the other area of outrage that we often see is is the people who make a, you know, a homophobic statement at some point in time, and it's okay to be outraged constantly about someone who makes some sort of whatever we define as a homophobic statement. Mm. And you see a lot of that sort of uh, outrage be expressed in a desire for punitive punishment of these people, that that they should be sacked or they should be fined or they should be, you know, excluded from particular events or, or, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it is the use of punitive measures from the state against people who say or do things we don't like uh, and getting the state on our side so that we are the ones who are in con- who, who are who are in control who have the power who can who can enforce the punishment rather than it having it being enforced upon us oh that's such a oh that makes me feel dirty it's such a gross <laughs> way of putting it you know the idea that like what we aspire to is simply to to hit back at the, the people we see as having hit us for yeah, yeah, and, and it makes me feel dirty too, and I hadn't thought about it until we started chatting um, in that terms, but 
but as I think about it more, it sort of makes much, much more sense to me. It's um, yeah, uh, and it, and it works. And I think the other thing to to say, um, and maybe this again loops back to the sort of the original where we started with the apology, is that it works for the state as well. It works. It, it incorporates a new community, a community who used to be the problem community almost, the ones who are fighting, you know, fighting the structure, these structures of violence. It brings them into the fold. It, it makes us part of the community and it makes us part of that sort of punitive structure so that we are acting like state operators almost. Uh, and you can see, I guess, what, you know, what happened with the apology uh, in Parliament. And, and I think the Parliament in particular, uh, part, the New South Wales Parliament are the ones who have come out looking best out of all of this, um, because their apology, I think, was it perceived as heartfelt and genuine. It was, it was you know, Sydney Morning Herald and, and the police who really struggled. Um, but what you can see there and what I'm trying to get at is the incorporation of those sort of queer values into, into that into that apparatus, into that apparatus, and that 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 brings with it a whole range of elements, um, you know, a whole, whole significant chunks of that apparatus that is when we're sort of being incorporated into, including the punitive structures. Mm. I suppose uh, maybe a nice question to to finish on, and and something that I think has the possibility for maybe a bit of hope in, in what's been a, a relatively bleak uh, conversation, <laughs> perhaps, um, is uh, thinking about a, a way to kind of engage with this and, and change people's attitudes about this kind of stuff. I was thinking about the fact that we have a, a lack of um, sort of familial histories in our communities that, that for lots of other communities who have experienced a lot of trauma, like ethnic communities, I think particularly about um, Jewish communities, this is often kind of talked about. Um, mm -hmm. The stories about uh, trauma are, are passed down from parents to children and kind of go through generations so that people don't forget, so that people remember. Now, obviously, that's much harder to do in queer communities because we don't, well, sometimes we do, but we don't usually have queer people having queer babies. Um, yep, yep. Do we have a responsibility to do that? Do we have a responsibility to, to try to remember violence and remember trauma in our communities? Yes, yes, I think we really do, and I think that we're really poor at it. And I think we're not just poor at uh, remembering tra violence and trauma; we're very poor at remembering our history in general. Uh, and this is something I've thought about a bit. Um, I think that a lot of um, people in queer communities basically assume that queer history started with Stonewall, uh, and mm. that you know we had Stonewall. We've some some somehow that randomly happened. Uh, we fought back, and then we won. And that's sort of the history that you would you would get uh it, it, that's sort of the picture that a lot of people would have uh and that uh is bad for a number of reasons primarily that it it forgets a lot of these sort of these stories of trauma this and and these stories of um of struggle before stonewall um before before you know hundreds of years ago even um that has an impact on how we how we see politics today and how we see our lives today um, so yeah, absolutely. I think it's important we tell that history a little bit more. Um, I think there are some organisations who, who work to do that, and I think that um, it's good. Uh, it'd be it's good to do more of it. Do you think that that remembering of trauma and engaging with history is potentially a way forward for engaging with contemporary violence against our communities? I think it's part of the process. Like I think that. Um, understanding where it comes from and this, the, the history behind it. And I think that that's, that that's the key thing. I think that uh, it's 
understanding that this is not just one-off random events, but part of a structure, structural history um, that takes us to where we are now, I think is really important. I think that that can create a better, a better picture of um, of what our of of what the structures that we have look like today. But at the same time, it's not everything, you know. And if you think about, you know, going back to the 2013 violence or the Tasty Raid, this is not stuff that is in history necessarily. It's you know, it's stuff that happened recently, and yet that still gets forgotten. That still gets pushed aside, seen as a you know an aberration towards the norm. Uh, and so we need to be able to think about what role the history plays, but also how we deal with current examples of it, of, of this sort of structural violence um, to, 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 to sort of find a way forward. That's it for us today. We might leave it there. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks, which you can find on queers.podomatic.com. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Uh, in the meantime, you can catch me on at Simon Copland on Twitter. I'm at Ben C. Riley on Twitter. Uh, thanks all and see you next time.